You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders 
that I perform among them. After that, he will let you go. I'm curious what these two words bring to mind when I say them, rescue and release. Uh, probably you might think of some kind of wildlife organization, the work they do. Maybe you think of VINs, which is involved with rescue and release of animals. But I hope to show and prove by the end of our study this morning that those two words are central to the concept of the exodus. That, that you can't talk about an exodus without talking about some kind of rescue or deliverance. And that rescue or deliverance is intended for a specific release or purpose. Uh, so if you have your Bibles or if you want to grab a pew Bible, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 uh, to a very familiar, well-known story. Uh, if some of you have ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt, uh, you'll be aware there's some things that are factual, and then there's also a lot of fabricated details in that movie, but that talks about Moses. Uh, it talks about the Exodus. Well, of course, if you're going to talk about the Exodus, rescue and release, it would make sense you want to go to a book that has that title, Exodus. Uh, but more than that, the book itself is an excellent place to go because the title does mean departure or to exit. And the first half of the book of Exodus is all about God leading his people out of Egypt. So that's one great reason to look to this book. The second reason is Exodus picks up exactly where Genesis left off. So you may recall that in looking at this theme of Exodus old and new, we spent some time in Genesis and we looked at different departures and God's moving, in particular in Abraham's life. And you may recall that Abraham had a covenant made with him by God. And in that covenant, God promised he would become the leader of a nation. Uh, his descendants would be more numerous than the sand uh, on the seashore. Uh, but that those people would spend centuries in captivity under the authority of another nation. And so 430 years they would spend in slavery in Egypt. And so Genesis picks up with what's the next part of this story? What's the next rescue and release? So we're going to look at this in terms of two supernatural activities that Exodus involves, saved from and saved to. So if you're going to talk about delivered, you have to be saved from something or someone. And then that saving is you're also saved to something. Uh, you're not just delivered for no reason at all. There must be a purpose in what you are delivered to. So let's begin by looking at what we're saved from through the eyes of Moses and the history of God's people. Uh, and so you notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, these words... Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So I already said that the first half of Exodus is all about God delivering the people out of Egypt. 
the whole book itself is a historical narrative. It, it basically is an adventure story. It's got everything you want in there. It's got a villain, Pharaoh. It's got a surprising hero, Moses. Uh, there are lots of twists and turns in it. But in particular, as we begin with, well, what, what are you saved from? That before you can actually get to the deliverance out of Egypt, once again, there's some smaller exoduses, some smaller saved from till we get to that bigger scene in a few weeks. But look at verse 1 as we read there. You have a description of the call of Moses and his rescue out of Midian. Now, it's interesting to consider when you think of Moses' life, you can easily divide it into three periods that are each 40 years long. So the first period is his growing up in Egypt. Uh, you may remember his mother puts him in like a little basket and he's picked up by uh, a servant of Pharaoh's. Uh, then she becomes like the nursemaid of her own child. Uh, the first 40 years of Moses' life are growing up in Egypt, being well-educated, uh, experiencing all of the, the pleasures of possibly even being potentially um, groomed for a position of leadership in Egypt. But then what happens the next 40 years is, you may recall that he sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian, and then that's kind of mentioned to him, and he flees from Egypt, and he spends the next 40 years in Midian, which is where we pick up here. So for 40 years after leaving Egypt, he's a shepherd. Uh, and it's interesting when you start to think about this, how God has used many other ex-shepherds in a tremendous way in Scripture. You've got Amos, you've got David. Uh, but here's Moses, that 40-year block from 40 to 80, he's a shepherd. And then the last period of his life will be when he's actually leading the people of Israel. That takes us through the rest of Exodus into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But let's consider his calling. You notice in verse 1 it mentions Mount Horeb. Uh, this is the equivalent and synonymous with Mount Sinai. Uh, it's a location that actually will gain its prominence from what happens after this in the book of Exodus. So here you have this title, it's the mountain of God. It, it actually will become the mountain of God. It will, it will stand a very significant place in the spiritual life of God's people. It's where later in Exodus, the law will be given to them. Uh, it's where God will meet with Moses. Uh, so very important role. But looking at the call of Moses, you get to verses 2 and 3. And there it speaks about the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And this fascinating scene of a, a bush that is burning and appears to be inflamed, but is not being consumed by the fire. Uh, I've heard many weak explanations of this from what well, was a bush that, you know, had red colored leaves, like we see bushes around us in the fall that look pretty, that kind of look red. Oh, they look flame-like. But that's not what is seen here. This is a supernatural appearance manifestation of God. And what's intriguing is this phrase that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Uh, this is not a phrase that's found often in the Old Testament. 
and I would lean toward what you have here is something called a Christophany, which, where this phrase indicates not just an angel of God, but the angel. Uh, and that would be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So Christ existed from eternity past because he's divine with the Spirit and the Father. And there are occasions in the Old Testament where Christ manifests his presence in a very unique way. This may explain why in the New Testament, Paul says that when God was leading the people of Israel, they had the same rock that we do, Jesus Christ. So it's a fascinating scene here where, where Moses, who, remember, he's a shepherd. He's, he's been outside. He, he knows and has experienced the natural phenomenon in nature, is, is captivated by this sight. It, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. And so out of both curiosity and the uniqueness of this, he draws closer to see what this is. Notice in verse 4, you have these words. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, I want you to think for a minute with the theme of Exodus, delivering, exiting. Think back to what the meaning of Moses' name was that as he was picked up from the, the bank of the water, uh, that he was given a name that means to be, to draw out, to, to kind of draw forth. And here God will be using Moses to draw him first out of Midian, but then to be the leader who under God's direction would draw out the people of Israel from Egypt. It's a very interesting picture here of God's calling on Moses to a greater degree than Moses even realized at this particular moment in time. And notice you have that repetitive Moses, Moses. Uh, this was not because Moses was hard of hearing, uh, but it's to demonstrate the seriousness of this. Uh, I like the way one commentator put it. When, when God calls your name twice, you better listen. Uh, and, and God is speaking now to Moses. There's a, a calling to Moses. And even though we have no indication that Moses was miserable in Midian, this clearly was not where God wanted to keep Moses. And so you have this rescue, this exit. I'm going to take you out of Midian. No longer are you going to be a shepherd of merely sheep, but, but I'm going to call you to be a shepherd of my people. And now as you look at verses 7 through 9, you notice that this points us ahead to a much greater rescue. That the emphasis isn't just on Midian. That has to happen first. But our direction is turned in verses 7 through 9 to what God wants to do in rescuing Israel from Egypt. And so look at verses 7 through 9 carefully. It says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, for all of us, there have been times where you have questioned if God has heard what you've prayed, uh, where, where it doesn't seem to be any change. 
circumstances maybe in your life seem to go from bad to worse, and you're kind of wrestling with, has, has God heard me? Is, is God still the same God? Well, imagine being the people of Israel 430 years in captivity in Egypt. And if you read the account, you notice that it gets extremely oppressive towards the end, especially once Moses starts to speak to Pharaoh about letting God's people go. And so verses 7 through 9, in speaking of the exodus to come out of Egypt, direct our attention to the character of God. Not to your circumstances, not to your emotions, but to the character of God. And, and look closely in verse 7, what, what it says there. We're reminded of God's omniscience. He knows everything. Of his omnipresence, he's with us no matter where we are. And also of God's compassion and power. So in verse 7, you have these phrases. I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying. I am concerned. How important for Moses to hear that? How important it is for the people of God to hear that when Moses delivers these words? And might I add, how important for you and me to hear that? I have seen your misery. I have seen it. But then notice it goes on. Look in verse 8. So I have come down to rescue you. The word rescue is a strong verb there. It means to, to snatch up, to liberate. And automatically with that thought of liberating is, well, then liberate to what? And we'll get to that. But right now we're saying Exodus involves this rescue being saved from. But then look again at verse 9. God emphasizes once again there in verse 9. The cry has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This word seen or see comes up repeatedly in Genesis and Exodus. It means to, to inspect or examine carefully. Not, not just a fleeting glance, but, but to actually focus on. God saying, I am focused on you. I know your life, your needs better than you do. And so to speak about God's bringing Israel out of Egypt, we're focused on the character of God. But then what are they to be saved to? So granted, we can see clearly they're in oppression. They're in physical slavery and bondage, separated from their homes, separated from the, the ability to worship in the tabernacle. But what are they saved to? Well, let's take a closer look here at verse 5. Because whatever God is saving Moses to would be the same for the people of Israel. And if that's true, can we make an argument that if we can see what they're saved from and saved to, that the same would be true for what Christ, the one who has ultimately rescued and released us, has done. But let's look at verse 5. 
in this scene, God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The word holy has a simple meaning, means to be set apart, uh, pure. But what made this piece of ground holy? It wasn't because of being a, a vantage real estate, because of its view. What made it holy was God's presence was there. And what a reminder to us as you look around our sanctuary, our sanctuary is well kept. I think we're blessed with comfortable seating, hopefully not too comfortable, so you don't nod off during a message, uh, but comfortable seating. Uh, we have nice windows we can look at. Is that what makes this place holy? No. Is it, is it holy because you're here? Because I showed up this Sunday? No, it's holy because we're invoking and coming before the presence of God. Is it possible that God, in delivering his people, is also looking to call them and save them to greater personal holiness and fellowship with himself? Is that really what the deliverance is about? Not just get you out of Egypt. I want you to be comfortable, but I want you to be holy. And I want you to walk in closer fellowship with God. Look carefully at verse 6, 15, and 16. You probably caught the repetition of being the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Did Moses need a history lesson? Well, I think he knew the history of his people. So God was not necessarily saying, Moses, I know you've never heard this before, but he was saying, Moses, focus on my faithfulness. Look at how I have saved from and save two in the past. And we have just learned about Abraham, so that should be pretty fresh in our mind, that, that God keeps his word. And if the exodus to come from Egypt was foreshadowed by Midian, was foreshadowed by Abraham being called out of Ur and Haran, is it possible that this exodus in Egypt, as great as it will be, is only part of a much bigger story about what Christ has done for you and me, for what we are to remember when we have the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our time of worship. And so we're looking at God saves to greater personal holiness and fellowship with God. But then we can also add to that God calling his people, rescuing them out of Egypt to release them into where? Well, immediately into the promised land to, to call them there. And we know that that did not happen immediately because of disobedience. But notice, if you would, in verse 8 of chapter 3 of Exodus, there in verse 8 it says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, we should not understand the milk and honey as, as literally 
This isn't some kind of candy land where everything is, you know, flowing out of plants. But it's a picture of, of a land of prosperity, fruitfulness, security, wealth. Exactly what he had promised to Abraham. And so we see the reality that we are saved to experience God's favor and blessings. But you notice with that in verse 8, it goes on to mention these people groups. Well, why are they mentioned? Because even once they do get to the promised land, in God's sovereignty, they will not immediately take over everything. There will be obstacles. There will be enemies that they will have to encounter, that they will cause them to trust in God. And the same you could say is true for you. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you already have received spiritual blessings beyond count. But yet, will you still face challenges, difficulties in this life? Absolutely. And so those blessings are not a replacement of challenges and things we will face, but a reminder to us from the midst of that, God has saved you in Christ to experience God's favor and blessing. But ultimately, we're brought to think about here, why did God send Moses to go to Pharaoh to say, let my people go? Was it merely that then they would be saved to experience God's holiness and greater closeness and trust in God? Well, that certainly is there. Was it to experience God's favor and blessings? Yes, but I think there's even a greater reason that binds those first two together, and that is to worship and serve God. And isn't that what God always rescues us and releases us to do? Not to just pay the price for our sins so that you can have a comfortable life, so you can rest assured that your sins are forgiven and that you're going to heaven. That's all true. But that's not what he saved you to. He saved you to worship and serve him. So let's go back to... Moses and his interaction with God. Notice in verse 10, this turns now specifically once again to Moses. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And then you have a series of interesting replies by Moses. And I know probably we tend to be critical of Moses. We're like, well, you just saw the burning bush. You know, why, why are you asking God these other questions? Well, I don't think we do anything that different when God confronts us with what it means to worship and serve him. Uh, that we're, we're hesitant. Uh, we know ourselves well enough to say, I, I'm not up to that task. But if you look closely at this, God says, I am sending you. That word sending is the exact same word that you see in verse 20. When he says, I will stretch out my hand against Pharaoh. Two very different results, but they're the same word. Just like I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh. Um, my hand is on you. That same hand will be on Pharaoh for judgment. What a reminder to Moses of God's presence with him. But if you look closely at the response of Moses, where he, he basically says, you know, well, who am I 
to go. And then his question about, well, what if they ask me who sends me? Now, you know how some of us tend to always anticipate worst case scenarios? Some of you are sitting there like, yeah, you know me. Uh, Moses anticipates something that we never have any record of anyone actually saying this to Moses. But God in his grace responds. And what you see is that God saves us to worship and serve. But when he does that, he equips you and me to do exactly that. Because in God's response, he doesn't ignore what Moses says. But he says, Moses, I'm, I, if I called you, if I saved you from, I am saving you to be able to serve me. And so if you look closely, notice the assurance he's given at the end of verse 12. The people that you will bring out of Egypt, you will come back to this mountain and you will worship together. And we know that's exactly what is going to take place. God's sign and indication to him. And then the other that we almost pass by is, was God's giving these instructions. Notice what verse 18 says, that he is to go assemble the elders first. Because remember, we're talking about, you know, over a million Israelites. Uh, so he's first going to gather the leaders together. But look carefully what verse 18 says. The elders of Israel will listen to you. I want you to think back for a moment. What was the last time we had any mention where Moses tried to say something to fellow Hebrews and they basically didn't listen? Just think about why he left Egypt. He kills an Egyptian, two Hebrews are fighting and Moses tries to say something and they turn and say to him, who made you? judge and ruler over us. You can't tell me that that stayed in Moses' mind. And he's thinking, why would they listen to me? And here God says, not just they will listen, but he uses the same word that God said, when I hear the cries of the Israelites. It's the word Shema, which means they will give you their undivided attention. What a reminder to Moses. What a reminder to us in Christ that God didn't just deliver you from your sins, but he saved you to worship and to serve him. And those tasks and responsibilities may at times seem much beyond our own personal abilities, and that's how it should be. Because you need to trust in God. You need to go back and read this passage and see that God called Moses. But he also empowered and equipped him to do exactly what he said. So there's no coincidence or it's not odd that as we think of the Lord's Supper, that we're connecting the Exodus with this. Not only did Christ explicitly do that when he instituted the Lord's Supper at Passover, the celebration of the exodus out of Egypt, but more so the Lord's Supper is all about causing you and me 
to think about what has Christ saved you from? To realize by his death, our sins were paid for. But if you only do that and only think of that aspect, that this is great, it saved me from hell or from a meaningless life, then you really haven't grasped the significance of rescue and release because he saved you to now walk with him, to have a personal relationship with him and to live for Christ. And just as all of us enjoy food, well, there's a reason Jesus included these elements, bread and juice, not because there's anything magical in them, but because they remind us that we have to feed on Christ. It's a relationship that has to be nurtured every day. If it isn't, then we will end up in many ways, like the people of Israel, wandering at times aimlessly, walking in direct disobedience to their God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has delivered us and we are no longer slaves to sin. But we become now slaves to righteousness. That it is a joy for us to walk in Christ, to worship Christ, and to serve the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I ask that as we come before you to participate in the Lord's Supper, that we would do so with the exodus before us. I pray in your name. Amen. The Bible is filled with different directions for the Lord's Supper, what its purpose and place is. Um, but let me read you these two verses from the Gospel of Matthew. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so it is imperative that we always remind ourselves that this is meant to be a time of personal examination before God. Uh, that if we really don't know who Christ is and, and he's not a part of our life, then, then you should just politely not open up the cup, not partake of the wafer, just let that sit there. Uh, because it's a serious act. It, it's a confession. A confession before people who sit around you. A confession more so before God. That I understand what you have saved me from and what you have saved me to. For those who know Christ, it's an opportunity to be encouraged in the faith. To be maybe reminded of the weaknesses, the frailties that you do bring to Christ. But again, to be reminded that because our God is self-existent, he is therefore all-sufficient for all of our needs. So I've asked if Tony would pray, and then I'll give further directions. Father, we come before you humbly. We know that you have given us these visible signs to remind us of what it was that your son did for us. To remind us that as we pray and worship and as we put our trust in him, that we are truly nourished by what he is and who he has been for us. 
So I pray that as we partake of this bread, that we would remember the cost that your son paid on our behalf. So if you just sort of peel back the top layer and hold the wafer for a moment. Uh, there's a reason we do this together. Uh, because it's a reminder, as the body of Christ, we are one. Uh, and so it's a unified corporate act. Um, so let us eat together this symbol of Christ's body. Jesus spoke of the cup and spoke of it as being a symbol of a covenant that was established, how his blood was shed, a sacrifice, but a perfect sacrifice would only do that. Uh, let me pray, and then together we'll drink. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we soon will drink this cup, uh, that we would think about how, just like our bodies, need to be nourished and fed, so does our relationship with you that it starts with that confession that Christ is our Savior and Lord, but it doesn't end there. That we are saved to be transformed into the image of Christ. And that is something that your Spirit must do in us as we obey you. And so, Lord, as we drink this, we are confessing to you our love for you, our understanding that you have saved us to worship and to serve you both now and in eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Taking the cup, Jesus said that he would not drink this with them, but will look forward to the day that we will drink it together in heaven. Let's drink.
to him who loves you and has washed you from your sins. We all honor and worship and service. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 